everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of Volley. I'm Carolyn April. And as always, I'm looking for my good buddy, Seth Robinson. Seth. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing all right. I've uh, been thrust this week into some unexpected car buying. So that is never fun. I mean, unless you're like out getting your dream car or something. Yeah, like no, that. that would be expected. You used the word thrust and that didn't sound like it was um, you know, no. vol- voluntary. No, there was a little fender bender. I mean, a little, more than a little fender bender uh, yeah. since we have to go get a new car. Um, but, uh, you know, we're getting getting the money from insurance, uh, living the headlines here, right? You know, you've been reading for months about how uh, expensive used cars are getting, and now I'm getting to experience that firsthand. Yeah, and they sure are. Well, for one, I've been there, so I totally empathize with you. Um and two, you're right about the used car thing. Um, I did buy a used car uh, a little over a year ago and um, out of necessity at the time. And uh, it was uh, it was pricey. Yeah. But hopefully you can find something that's not too used, not too pricey, makes, you know, works for what you need. I was kind of I was kind of going for get a car that I hope lasts me a couple of years until it falls apart. And that's fine. That was all I needed. at the Yeah. Time. But it, you know, I don't know what you're looking for, but yeah, I think for, for us, it's kind of like, well, we, we kind of know the, the, the specs on the car that we want. So then after that, it's basically just, here's the price you're going to pay. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I guess if we, we don't exactly have, I mean, we, we definitely have a ceiling. We're not, we're not out there trying to spend $50,000 on a used car. Yeah. Um, but once you kind of know the car you're looking for, yeah. You know, and this is what we were going through. It's like, let's just get it. Just get it and be done with it. Cause it's not like, you know, sitting around and, you know, scouring the internet for the next month is gonna reveal some gem that we're gonna be able to jump on. Like this no, is probably gonna... not. Yeah. You should shop with me. I can't do the scouring of the internet thing. I'm like one of these, like, just buy it. Um, that's to a fault sometimes, but sometimes it does work out like less of a headache than, than comparison shopping forever. And then you end up right back at square one buying the thing that you saw in the first place. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, today's topic that we're going to talk about is kind of economy related too. uh, I'm going to go back to some data that you collected a while ago from state of the channel and talk about, Mergers and acquisitions, M&A activity, but kind of broadly looking at what's happening in the IT channel and the IT industry in terms of consolidation, in terms of this type of activity and how companies are approaching it uh, and and how that's shaping the the industry and especially the IT channel. So yeah. why don't you kick things off? Yeah, it's interesting. There's this sort of a dichotomy going on right now. Um, in the channel in terms of use the word, you said the word consolidation, and, and we hear that a lot when we go to events and when we read stories that are talking about the channel, and it's consolidation, consolidation. And it's like, what is that exactly? Does that mean, are we shrinking? Is the channel shrinking? And we're forever chasing that finite number of how many channel companies are there. And I don't think anyone, um, anyone has it because the definition of what a channel company is is so broad. Um, but when I think when it's when I say dichotomy, I mean I think you've got two things going on here in terms of the the consolidation or non-consolidation of the channel is that on the one hand, you've got all this talk about ecosystems and this sort of blossoming number of or type of company that's entering the channel beyond the traditional. So you've got, you know, you hear, you know, a lot of pundits talk about it, but we've got so many new players, and we've discussed this on the podcast, you know, everyone from influencer types that are 
kind of sort of in the tech industry, but they're more influencing some purchasing decisions, but not necessarily involved in anything to do with the actual sale of a product. Consultants that are out there, um, non-traditional companies that sort of get to be little like de facto experts in their pocket of software, and they sort of have some influence on the sale. And then all of the support type of or adjacent type of companies that are involved in that landscape, that's made the ecosystem bigger than just resellers and MSPs that traditionally make things up. Um, so in that sense, you can't really say consolidation so much as expansion. Um, on the other hand, though, the sort of the foundation and the bedrock of the channel has not changed. It is primarily made up of, and I mean en masse, with solution providers and MSPs that have been the, you know, been the, um, the channel as it is defined for decades now. So that's pretty consistent. And a lot of those companies are the ones that are getting older and are owned by individuals um, who are looking to sell, who are retiring. And so you see M&A activity happening there just by uh, attrition. It's the end of life for a lot of those smaller companies. So it's a very interesting time. You can't really say the channel is consolidating, although there is quite a bit of selling activity. Um, but it's also expanding at the same time because we're welcoming in so many new players. So um, again, very long-winded way of saying it's a little bit hard to put your finger on exactly what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the the first thing that I tend to think about is the the scale that you're talking about and the fact that the greater scale of the IT channel I think has changed the nature of this type of activity whereas before I think we all, you know, have heard a lot of stories of people that kind of had their small smallish MSP and then they sold that MSP to someone that was a little bit bigger that was trying to build more of a franchise or more of a, a, a larger company. But now those larger companies are getting to be really large. And yeah. for them to just buy a small shop uh, really isn't going to change their uh, business model that much. Yeah. Um, so you've probably still got a lot of these, you know, small MSPs, uh, channel consultants, whatever it might be, kind of looking and hoping that someday they could exit and sell their company to somebody but the the people that would be acquiring that are maybe getting less and less interested in just picking up a, you know a small piece of the puzzle, right? You know they're they're right. looking for the, the big may, maybe not quite mega mergers like we had with Kaseya and Datto, but probably looking to add a significant piece, right? Rather than just onesie twosie trying to add on and pick up a few clients and add a client list, right? So. Yeah. I, I think the scale has changed it. And then, like you're saying, the diversification is really interesting because I don't know how many of the larger existing players in the channel are trying to strongly diversify into something like data management or maybe today something like AI. And so they'd be looking for a startup that's specializing in that where they can bring in some kind of unique IP that would give them a shot in the arm. I just don't get a sense that there are a lot of people out there doing that type of thing. Um, and, and, and there are probably uh, not, not as many, you know, companies uh, looking to sell in, in that matter either, right? You know, again, the, the traditional way that we've thought of it is the smaller companies looking to sell and exit, and that's kind of the retirement plan or whatever it might be. And this would be something different. You know, this would be, you know, somebody that's got a startup and they're trying to 
exit their startup, maybe as a way to leverage themselves as an entrepreneur into the next phase of their career or into another idea that they would have. And that's not traditionally the way that things have happened in the IT channel. So I just, I don't know exactly how much of that activity there is, but I assume that that part of it is growing. Yeah, that part of it is. And you hit upon a very, a very smart point there in that um, it is, when we talk about mergers and acquisitions and M&A activity in general, it isn't just one thing. It's very, it, it does fit into different buckets. And the more strategic M&A activity you're seeing, which you refer to as some to like a larger company buying a startup or a smaller um, channel company that may be specializing in some sort of emerging tech area, um, something that something niche that the larger company really wants and covets the skills that they have or maybe the solution that they have. Um, that's one one area of activity. And that seems to be the one that's growing the most. There's a lot of private equity money that's going in there. A lot of vendors do some of that purchasing. So it'd be like a vendor company looking to buy a partner company that has something, a services arm that, you know, that they've got expertise in servicing companies in data management or something like you mentioned. Um, And they will buy that up as opposed to trying to grow it organically within their vendor organization. There's a ton of activity going on there. I was looking at, we all know Joe Penetary, who are friends of the uh, friends of the the channel. And he, his website, Channel E2E, tracks all these, this M&A's individual companies buying on a monthly basis. So it's a really great tool. I'm giving a shameless plug here to Joe, but but it is great. I was looking at it today and, and, you know, one of the, I was like, you know, who's buying whom and why? And that's kind of what he puts out there. And, you know, a couple of the acquisitions that jumped out was, you know, one company was buying this very, this smaller firm um, that was a, a channel firm type company, but what did they do? They did holographic technology. Now that's super niche, but it's something that's going to feed into VR and you could see why this larger vendor. So I'll leave these, these companies nameless, larger vendor was interested maybe in this niche thing. So that's definitely something that's going on. And when you ask, when I asked the question on the, on the state of the channel study, you know, what do you think about M&A activity in general? Is it overhyped? Is it something affecting your company? Most of the rank and file respondents were like, a little overhyped because they don't play in this this market that I'm just talking about with the, the bigger players buying um, specific skills, uh, skilled companies um, to add to their portfolio. Um, but but the smaller firms still are interested in selling. So the, another data point that we collected was, you know, how um, likely are you to sell your company in the next two to five years? And a lot of them, 28 percent said they were highly likely. So that that's a pretty big number. And then the, the bulk um, said that they were likely. Um, so a lot of companies are looking to do the retirement thing, um, but again, very different than the lane that is going on where the kind of the buzzy kind of activity that's going on with the larger vendors, distributors also doing a lot of buying, and then big channel firms who maybe started off as small ones, but as you said, they're building like a Frankenstein model on top of one another, and all of a sudden they are now a large solution provider looking to buy um, looking to buy others. And um, you're right, I think it has to operate in two different lanes because those very small traditional shops that are set looking to sell as a retirement plan, they're not going to be necessarily of interest to these large companies that have very specific target goals with whom they're going to be buying. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Carolyn, that like if in the past, a lot of these smaller companies kind of had the idea that this is what the end of the road looked like for them, right? That they would be able to exit and sell their business and that would be sort of their retirement strategy or build their nest egg or whatever. If that is starting to happen less, it sounds like from your data, and I'm sure from some of the conversations you've had, 
that's still kind of what people are hoping for. That's that's the main thing that they have in mind is that, you know, okay, when I get to, uh, you know, the finish line here, that's what I'm going to do with my business. How much do we have to start changing that conversation with them and kind of start suggesting, okay, if you're not going to be able to sell your business, you know, up to another company that's trying to build something, are you preparing to sell your business sideways? Are you looking for someone that could maybe, you know, partner with you for a few years and then they would take over your business and they would keep running it. And that would be the way that you personally would exit. The business itself might stay kind of lateral, but, but personally, that's the way that you would be able to, uh, you know, kind of finish things off. Do you think that that type of conversation needs to start happening? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it's, um, it can be a very risky proposition to put all your eggs in the basket of, you know, when I'm ready to retire, pick your age, I'm just going to sell my company. It doesn't always work that way. Um, economic factors obviously have a huge impact. Um, it could be a recession, a, a down economy, any of the various things that we've gone through in the last three years um, that will very much affect whether the viability of that sale for your company. Um, if you haven't been doing all the um, all the due diligence work that goes into um, getting your company ready to sell, um, you could be in trouble when you want to pull the trigger on that. Um, you got to make sure you are um, showing profit. <laughs> I mean, some basic stuff, but it's really important, um, you know, and be able to go into a potential buyer and give them a balance sheet and show them everything that they need to know so that they're going to be confident in buying your company. A lot of smaller companies, and I'm talking, you know, five person shops don't necessarily have the acumen on hand and they need to go out and learn a little bit about that. The other thing is the appetite might not be there as we just discussed for a horizontal um, infrastructure focused traditional solution provider to be scooped up by one of these other companies and a lateral type sale might be the thing to do. Um, you know, I'll give a personal anecdote. My dad saying, you know, he ran a small company um, successfully for, you know, 30 plus years. And his plan was to sell, you know, when he got into his sixties and, um, you know, the, at the time the economy was just cratered. It was, it was a terrible timing and he was caught a bit flat footed. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was rough and was not what he envisioned. Um, but you know, he, what he ended up doing is a lateral type sale and he sold to a company that was willing to take on his business basically a flat, no, you know, no profit made here or anything. And my dad stayed on with the company for a year um, under contract to kind of do the transition. He owned all the customers. Everybody knew him. And that was just part of the deal. And it enabled my father to, to, to transition out successfully, but it wasn't the plan. And so I guess, um, you know, what I'm saying is there's a lot of similarities to some of these smaller companies that they're in the channel to what my dad's company's size was like. And, uh, and it's it's not something that can just be counted on. Um, so I don't mean to be like overly cautionary and and kind of you know you know beware uh, and all of that. Um, but it's it's not um, it's not a it's not necessarily something that you can hundred percent count on going smoothly. So it's something to prepare for. You're right. Yeah. No. It's it's interesting. My dad was similar situation. You know, he had his own accounting firm and he sort of had a personal attachment to it. Like he kind of could have sold his client list to H&R Block, but he sort of didn't want to do that. There was a way that he wanted to do it. And for my dad, it sort of worked out, but it felt a little bit like a stroke of luck that, you know, that what he wanted to happen kind of came together at the 11th hour. It was pretty stressful, you know, for him. Yeah. Um, and I think it would have been better if he would have had 
a plan B that he was more comfortable with and kind of said, okay, if, if things don't go my way or if the economy craters or whatever, then I'm going to do this. And then, you know, I don't have to spend too many sleepless nights. I'll just do this and I'll be fine. And, and that'll be, that'll be good. So I think that doing that kind of advanced planning and doing the things that you talked about, about getting your financial house in order and knowing what numbers are going to be of interest to whatever type of potential buyer you might encounter. I, I think a lot of that stuff um, is, is necessary rather than just kind of crossing your fingers and, and hoping that, you know, when you get to the end, there's going to be something there waiting for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen over the past 12 months or so, how quickly, you know, economic winds can change uh, and, and, and how much that, that might be even disconnected from reality, right? I mean, I think as we talk to a lot of the businesses that are in our membership, they're doing well, they're, they're, they're working with their clients, their clients are happy, their clients need a lot of technology help, but there's this overarching concern about is a, res a recession coming? Do yeah. we have to start getting more cautious, right? And you just can't control a lot of those factors. Uh, and so I think that being prepared from a financial standpoint, from kind of a cultural standpoint or a mentality around your business, I, I think a lot of that work is really important because this whole space is very different than it was 10 or maybe even five years ago. Yeah. And, and you know, the other thing you can do is if, if you're really close to retirement, it's important to do all of these, you know, all of these um, evaluations of your business that we're talking about here, making sure you've got, you know, your house in order. And, and I think that that's very key for companies that are that are thinking about the sale and the retirement um, in the very near future. For companies that are sort of in the in, in the mid part of their trajectory, mid to late. Um, so they're not really ready to sell yet. It may be another eight to 10 years. Um, one of the things that I think is smart for them is to start thinking about how they can differentiate. And so for those companies, they may be, may be in a good position to start thinking about, do we want to add some things to our portfolio that are more innovative, get into AI, get into some of these areas, specialize in cybersecurity. One of the things that I see in Joe's list of mergers and acquisitions is a lot of these M&As are taking place uh, between companies that want more cybersecurity expertise. So they're plucking up smaller companies that are good at cybersecurity and, you know, have taken it up, you know, up a notch in terms of the skills that they offer um, and the types of um, types of products that they may sell, et cetera. So if you're kind of in that mid P, you know, part of your life cycle with your company, you still have time to not only get your house in order, which is what you would do if you're really ready to sell, but more maybe embark on some more um, ambitious and innovative things that when it comes time to sell down the road, you're going to be um, a company that's in demand. Um, so that's another another thing to to really think about if you're um, somewhere along the chain of uh, owning your owning your business. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of angles to this. And uh, last year we talked about this topic, and we had Rob Ray on. It's always good to get some yeah. different perspectives. Uh, you know, you and I have the data that we collect and some of the conversations we have. But there's a lot of people out there that are focusing more and more on this as a as a specialty topic and helping these firms prepare for the future. And you are leading a discussion at ChannelCon coming up with some of these experts, right? Yes, I am. So I was going to get my shameless plug number two in there today. Um, yes, at ChannelCon in August, I do have a session uh, on on M and A and channel consolidation. Um, we'll we'll talk a lot about the things we talked about here today, but I've
got some experts on the panel and these are the real in the trenches folks who will you can hire as a channel company um, as consultants to work with you to tell you exactly what your best practices checklist should be if you're thinking about trying to sell your business or conversely if you're in the market to buy a business um, there's obviously there, that's got its own set of checklists and, and buyer beware type things. So um, it should be a really informative session. That's what we're aiming for some prescriptive. So um, get in the room if you're coming to Channel Con and, uh, and hopefully you can learn something from it. But um, I know I will. So I'm kind of excited for that session. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing how it goes. So, yeah. so yeah, definitely. If uh, anyone out there is heading to Channel Con and, and has uh, mergers and acquisitions or buying and selling on their mind, then be sure to attend that session. So looking forward to it. Yes. All right. Well, we are going to wrap up our uh, episode again with Career Spotlight like we've been doing for the past few months. This has been um, uh, a special thing that we've been trying to do in conjunction with CompTIA's marketing department and some of the individuals that they've been focusing on and some of the profiling that they're doing. Uh, this is going to be our last one uh, for, for the time being. And I'm sure that we will come back to workforce issues and maybe look at some other individuals in the future. But for now, we're going to wrap up Career Spotlight with a look at Joseph, who uh, is working in the healthcare industry. When I started in IT, someone was generous enough to fill in the gaps for me. And I realized that the best way to give back is by playing on strengths. You'd be surprised how many people don't really understand certain troubleshooting or uh, subnetting questions. And so Network Plus, for me, honed my skill as a network engineer and as a security practitioner. It makes me excited that I'm able to do what others might have not been able to and that I am actually important where I work. I like the way he ended that, um, uh, talking about feeling important where he works. And um, not everybody does. And I think that, the, that those of us who are able to find that in our work life um, is really fulfilling. And I think that's one of the sort of like undersold parts of IT um, and IT professions is that it, they're truly... Um, they they're part of, of of a system that you're 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 helping people within your organization. Um, you know whether that's just crazy. You know my computer crashed and I can't do anything and I need help. You know that can make you make or break your day. And you can help or bigger picture. I this gentleman here, Joseph, works in healthcare, and I'm sure for him, if you you can roll that you know, what he does all the way up into, you know, we're, we're helping uh, on a grand scale, you know, people um, be better health wise. And um, so I think, you know, looking, sometimes looking at a profession um, in more of the humanitarian way and, and, and how it can make you feel good about yourself too um, is important. Yeah. We haven't talked about that as much with these yeah. career spotlight segments, but we have talked about it a little bit before on Bali, how there's a little bit of this tension in the technology industry about, you know, is it doing good for society or is it, you know, a net harm for society? I mean, I think there's pros and cons, you know, the arguments on both sides, but I, I think overall it's pushing things forward. It's helping things be achieved that can be achieved before. Uh, and so if you're able to do that responsibly, if you're able to take into consideration some of these new ethical concerns or concerns around scale, that are coming up as we're introducing new solutions, then you really can do some good. Uh, and it seems like Joseph has been able to find that and a lot of uh, other individuals that we talked to are able to find that as well. So good to hear that. Very good. Very good, my friend. Well, All right. Well, uh, another good conversation in the books. Uh, mm -hmm. I am headed off to vacation next week, so don't have to worry about 
podcasting or car buying or any of these things. So uh, really looking forward to that. And I will see you on the other side. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrea McMillan. And uh, Carolyn, hope you have a good time while I'm gone. Thank you. Enjoy your time away. You deserve it.